You're listening to TIP. Storage is not a passive investment. It is a very active investment, particularly early on before you reach scale. In this week's episode, I talk with the Sultan of Storage about his journey into real estate investing from the corporate world and all things self-storage. The Sultan of Storage spent 12 years in the corporate world at a fintech company before buying his first real estate investment, which was a self-storage facility in February 2021. Today, just over 21 months later, he owns seven self-storage facilities that encompass 1,300 units and was able to replace his W-2 income to invest in real estate full-time. Self-storage has become one of the most popular asset classes over the past few years, and I know there are a lot of people in the audience who listen to this show who want to learn more. So I hope you all enjoy this week's episode with the Sultan of Storage. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, And today with me, I have the Sultan of Storage. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Glad to be here. Your tweets are entertaining, funny, and informative. You have a pinned tweet that says, how I bought four crappy self-storage properties in 14 months by listening to one podcast, sending out 50 letters, making one phone call, and paying $1,500 to talk to a stranger on the internet. All of this made you jump down the self-storage rabbit hole. Let's go through each piece of that. What was the podcast you were listening to and why was it so inspiring to you? I think it was almost exactly two years ago to the date. I listened to an episode of My First Million podcast with Sean and Sam, which I'm sure many of your, your listeners also, also listen to. And they interviewed Nick Huber, who at the time had built a self-storage portfolio of about $10 million. And he described this strategy of buying mom and pop storage facilities that had been undermanaged, fixing them up both physically and, and more so operationally, and turning them into cash flowing beasts. And I thought, yeah, at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. I had come out of 15 years in financial technology, and I knew I didn't want to continue to do that. And I, I was on a mountain bike ride when I was listening to this podcast. And I remember that moment where I was like, I can do this. I had been looking for what that next thing was for my career. And I thought, man, this sounds sounds like something I can do. So the the rest is history from there. So not to get too personal for a second here, but was your wife or or girlfriend or anybody, were they on board? Like, What was that picture like? I know sometimes that's a big barrier to, to not only making a career switch, but even just like getting involved in real estate. Some people have a misconception of what real estate is. And so they're, they're really concerned if their partner or something goes into it. So I'm curious if there was any dynamic of that for you. I guess rewinding to that point in my life, it was a real point of transition. I had come out of this long career in tech. We had just moved back to Colorado from London. And and my wife was along for that journey. And she saw me go through so many ideas of what I wanted to do. When I walked in the door that day and told her I wanted to start buying self-storage properties, she probably just thought, yeah, okay, that's the, the trick of the day. I've heard you've come with many ideas. Let's, I'll believe it when I, when I see it. 
And luckily, she's pretty understanding. She's financially very frugal. So I didn't describe for how much of our savings would have to go into this project to make it successful. But now I tell her the numbers and she's not impressed. She's far less impressed than I think most of my Twitter followers. But she lets me do it. So you paid $1,500 for a talk. There's a lot of kind of misconceptions out there about needing mentors, maybe, or paying for coaching. Like, explain to us why you spent the $1,500, if it was worth it, kind of what you learned from it, and if you'd do it again if you, you were going back. Or maybe you're talking to somebody who's listening to the show today and they're wondering if maybe they need to pay a little bit of money to talk to an expert to kind of get their wheels turning. There are a lot of folks out there on the internet pushing info products. But I, I will say that that, that $1,500 that I spent is the, the best return that I've ever generated on spend. And that was with Nick Huber. So at, at the time, he was offering self-storage consulting. So the $1,500 got me an hour of his time to walk through a, a deal, help me evaluate a deal. And then he provided me a bunch of his resources that he had built, including his underwriting or financial model. And that was worth it only because I had an actual deal in pocket that I needed help evaluating. So I, I got my first call back from an owner of the first property that I bought. He gave me all the information that I needed to underwrite the deal. I ran it through some models that I had built on, on my own. But I needed somebody else to help me look at that and, and make sure that it was right. And so Nick walked through the model that put my, plugged my numbers into, into his model. And I think we had a call at like 5am my time because it was I needed to get his opinion on this quick. And he's like, all right, if you want to talk to me, it's got to be at 5am your time, 7am my time for my, my day starts. And I'm super grateful that, that he got me in, again, the best 1500 bucks that I've, I've ever spent. So he looked at that. And I had come in with this mentality of cutting costs. So I saw that the, the prior owner was running at like a 45, 50% expense ratio, meaning his expenses were half of his revenue. And I had read on the internet that a storage property should operate more at like a 30% expense ratio. So I thought, okay, I, I could see the fluff. I could see he was overpaying a, an on-site manager. He was paying crazy amounts for things like a, a bookkeeper, 600 bucks a month for a bookkeeper. That's something that I pay less than 50 bucks a, a month for now. And so I had built this model to forecast all these cuts and expenses, and I hadn't really forecasted any increase in revenue. He looked at it with me. He's like, man, this, this deal is going to make you a million dollars within 18 months. And it's not just through cutting costs, but it's also through managing revenue. The property is full today. That in itself tells you that the, the current owner is underpriced. He's, he's not charging enough. And so we, we plugged in some pretty moderate increases to revenue along with the decreases to expenses. And voila, it, you know, it said that the property would cash flow really nicely and probably be worth a million dollars more than than I bought it for in, in a fairly short period of time. And that proved to be reality. So I was able to do exactly that. I increased net income, which is the number that storage properties are used to be valued. And I've more than doubled net income in the last, I guess, 20, 21 months that I've, I've owned that property. Where is that property based? It's in rural New Mexico. How'd you end up there? Middle of nowhere. Did you take that out of the Nick Huber kind of playbook? I know he, you know, I mean, he's, he's much bigger than he was now. I had him on the show a while back, but when he first started or when he first came on the show, he was still relatively small. And I know he was looking at like very rural areas in pretty much any state. Is that kind of how you ended up in rural New Mexico? Yeah, for me, it's, it was really because it's within an hour of where I live. 
And I, I drew that hour radius around where I'm seated today. And this property was it within that, that radius. And I'm in a very rural area. And it was on that list. Today, I've, I've continued my focus in tertiary markets. Some of my markets, I'm not even sure that you'd consider them tertiary. They're, you know, they're sub-tertiary for a couple of reasons. One, there's not as much competition from guys like me. Like there's not, you don't see a lot of like, or even guys bigger than me, you don't see a lot of in- institutional buyers in those areas driving prices up. Second, for me, it's, it's easier to understand the local market. You can pretty easily call around to the other facilities in the area, get an idea of how full everybody is, and use that data to figure out whether or not there's a, a balance between supply and demand, or potentially an oversupply or, or over-demand. Oversupply being really bad if you're looking to buy a facility in the area, over-demand or under-supply being a, a good thing, meaning that you can drive prices higher. I've continued to look I've expanded outside of my my little neck of, of the woods here and now own facilities that are as far as, you know, six and a half hours away from me. And I'm focused primarily on tertiary markets in the West. I don't know what's really holding me back from going outside of sort of the Southwest region, other than there's just so many opportunities and I gotta figure out some way to to focus. And and today it's focusing on very specific communities in the West. Do you go to the properties? I've visited every property before I bought them. I have multiple properties I have not been to since closing on them. We have a, a remote management model and storage is not a passive investment. It is a very active investment, particularly early on before you reach scale. But my focus with this has always been to create a business that can run without my involvement. I want to make it as, I won't call it passive, but I'll make it as uninvolved as possible. And I've been, you know, I've been lucky to have have created that. So I now have a team of both remote customer service employees and and a manager, along with on-site local contractors that really run the business for me, the day-to-day operations. And my view is that if I have to go on-site to a property, something's broken in my model, because I should have my goal is to build this model so that I don't have to be involved. Yeah, I own. I don't own self storage. Well, I own self storage through a, a syndication, but I own single family homes, long distance, and the remote, similar to kind of your model, but with a different asset class. And that's always my philosophy: is if I have to go there, like I've never been there, I've never been to the town in my life, I've never seen the properties, nothing. So it's really remote. But I always say, if I ever have to go there, then something went really, really wrong. So it sounds like you're kind of in the same boat. But the flip coin of that is, or the flip side of that is that you don't really have an excuse now to not go long distance. You can look all over the country now because you have the systems in place. So you kind of have to just take that leap once, once you're ready. Definitely. I think there is, there is a lot of value in focus though. And that's why I've, I've chosen to focus in, in specific areas because if I get, if I start casting the, the wet, the net too wide, I think I'd lose some of that focus and become less effective. I think part of what uh, led to that success early on was just that maniacal focus on the area around me. Before you became today known as the Sultan of Storage and you did everything that we've talked about so far, you were doing, like you said, business development in the fintech industry. I'm always interested, you know, because a lot of people bash kind of the W2, nine to five world. 
And I, I personally love entrepreneurship. I love people doing their own thing, but I do think that there is some value in W2 and, and nine to fives. And I, I think that there is a lot, a lot of value there. So I'm curious, what are some of the skills, the key skills that you learned doing business development in your W2, your nine to five job in the fintech world that have really helped you in buying and operating your self-storage facilities? I'd encourage anybody who's in a W2 today to focus on what they can get from that outside of money. Because I think that I probably missed some opportunities and like really focusing on what could I get out of that? Where could I grow? How could I learn? I always wanted to quit my job from very, very early on in my career. I, I was focused on achieving financial independence so I could quit. And I wish that I had focused more on what I could learn and, and gain from that experience. But I think that I was a biz dev leader. To be successful in that role, you've got to be a great communicator, as I stutter with that word. You've got to be a great communicator. You've got to be able to tell stories and, and get people on board with your vision. I think that's been really helpful with storage. In most cases, I'm buying from people that are very invested in these properties. I hope that none of them follow me on Twitter and see me referring to their, their properties as, as crappy. But the reality is, is that you know, in most cases, they're older. They've had these properties in their care for decades. And they want to see them pass to somebody that's going to take care of them. And I think that I've been successful in building relationships with these sellers before they commit to, to selling to me. In multiple cases, I wasn't the only guy that had sent them letters, but I ended up being the guy that they sold the properties to because I was able to connect with them, ask them questions, not just about the storage property, about themselves and their, their lives. And I think because of that, they realized that I was a good guy that would take good care of the, these properties after they, after they sold them and, and convinced them to, to sell them to me. Outside of that, I think you know, I, I gained a, a general financial expertise. I understand how to read a profit and loss statement and a balance sheet. And that came in, in very handy. I, I understand basic financial metrics like return on investment, and that was helpful in me actually being able to plug some numbers into a model that I built to understand whether or not the numbers made sense, whether I was going to make enough money for to justify the the amount of work that would go into it. And then on the sales side, like the lack of fear, which I, I'm not going to say I don't have fear, but I think I developed a an ability to just pick up the phone and and call people over the years. And today, I still have to give myself a little bit of a nudge to to make phone calls. I made a couple of cold calls this morning and. You always, no matter how long you've been selling, unless you're a very special character, there's always a little bit of, of hesitation to call. But luckily, I've, I've built a little bit of armor over the years to be able to make those calls. And I have to tell myself, like, look, you're calling these people to offer them a giant amount of money for a property that they own. If somebody called you today wanting to buy your property, are you going to be mad about that? No. You, I, would have, I would gladly have a conversation with anybody who, who called me. I have to frame it that way when I think about making these calls. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, 
paying off some bills, or investing, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Let's unpack some of those metrics and the financial pieces that, that you talked about. I want to I learn how you source your properties and what you're looking at when you evaluate them. I know we kind of went over that with Nick a little bit, but let's dive in a little bit deeper. So first, we know you're, where you're investing, but tell us how are you finding those deals, your deals specifically in that area? And then once you're analyzing, what are the big, most important metrics that you're looking at when you're deciding whether you actually want to buy it or not? Starting out with, how do I know if a deal is a, a good deal for me? It's, I am a value-add investor. I'm looking for properties that I can add value to. And that, will, that added value will re- result both in, in cash flow and appreciation in the property value. Things that, that shout value add to me would be an undermanaged or, or even mismanaged business. So in, in the modern world, those would be things like lack of a website, a poorly managed Google profile, not accepting electronic payments. You won't believe how many of the, the properties that I've, you know, I've introduced card payments for the first time ever. They, you know, these are cash and, and check only businesses. And then I, I look to the financials for any inefficiencies in expenses, but more importantly, comparing their pricing to the market. And so in most cases, I'm looking for properties that are below market and what they're charging, where maybe they're, char- they're, they're 50% below what their, their neighbor down the, the road is, is charging. So all of those factors together combine to create what I, I'd call a crappy storage property. And the most fun that I have is going in and, and taking something like that that is very poorly managed today and making it just a beautiful machine. Adding software, adding a website, supporting electronic payments, not only supporting but requiring electronic payments, investing some, you know, investing in, in some basic marketing, implementing accounting software. It's all pretty basic stuff, but 
I've been surprised with how much I really enjoy remodeling businesses, which is what I do. I'm looking for businesses to fix up. And I found storage as the perfect asset class to do that. You asked about how I sort of evaluate the properties or source and evaluate. Sourcing the properties, it's a very manual task today. I know there's software out there that could probably make this easier for me, but I try not to overcomplicate things. And if I if I start looking at at software packages to make life easier, that's just in many cases I'll get cases I, I could just get distracted and, and focus more on on that than actually prospecting. And so I just take a very basic approach of of Google Maps to identify properties in an area and then manually building Google Sheets. And I do use a CRM software to, to manage my, my pipeline. When it comes to evaluating the, the financial metrics of, of a property, I build a, a pro forma PL, which is a fancy way of saying a, a forecasted PL, where I plug in the prices that I think I could get for the units, what my expenses would be, what my cash investment would be in the business. And that then spits out sort of a five year profit and loss forecast that shows me what I could expect the property to do. My number one hurdle that I'm looking for a property to hit is cash on cash return. And I'm, I'm looking for a minimum of, of about 20% cash on cash. In some cases, I'll get down to about 15% cash on cash return if I, I really like the property. But in almost every case today, I'm, I'm hitting or exceeding that return. Others look at metrics like IRR, internal rate of return. That's important if you're planning to exit. I don't have a specific plan to exit these properties. Like, I mean, they're, I don't know why I would sell them unless I want to just completely retire, like, or I just really need liquidity to go buy more. But it's just amazing looking at the numbers and the paydowns of the loans and the, the tax treatment, all of it is just all really favorable. And I, I see no reason to sell anytime soon. What size are the properties that you're buying? How many units? What's your what's your minimum uh, there? They are anywhere from ten thousand square feet on the low end up to my largest properties forty thousand square feet. Anywhere from seventy units in some of those ten thousand square foot properties up to north of like two hundred and sixty units in the the forty thousand square foot property. And my purchase price is anywhere from six hundred and sixty thousand dollars for my cheapest property up to the the most expensive one I've bought was one point eight five million dollars. So when you talk about that fifteen to twenty percent cash on cash return, do you set a basically a deadline for those? Because when you buy these properties, obviously, like you said, you you yourself have said they're crappy properties, they're mom and pop properties. So it's gonna take some time before you stabilize that asset and, and get it to achieve your kind of pro forma returns, your 15, 20%. How long do you give that property to get to that point? I'm typically shooting for about six months to stabilize. In the first few months, properties may not even be servicing the debt that I've I've got on them, but I I always want to see within six months a path to the cash on cash returns. And then the other metric that I, I look at is that debt service coverage ratio. I want to be north of, of one and a half X, more comfortable with like a two X debt service coverage ratio. And I'm normally hitting that within within six months, sometimes a little bit longer. So if the properties aren't hitting, even covering their debt service in the first, say, six months, how are you funding that? Are you just going into that property with enough reserves to cover that, knowing that's going to be an issue? So you go in pretty heavy with reserves? Yeah, it's pretty rare that a property will negatively cash flow, even even early on. Typically, I'm getting a check at, at closing from the, from the seller for prepaid rents that they've collected that will, will cover a bit. 
you know, typically you don't have a, a big property tax bill early on. You have a bit of time before that hits. Usually the properties are at least covering the debt for at least covering the debt early on. If they aren't, if there's months of, of negative cash flow, I've just got, I've set aside enough reserves to cover that early on. But I'm, I would say that I'm, I'm a very conservative, like financially, I'm, I'm very conservative. I have always lived very well below my means. I've always been focused on stashing cash and, and building a, a big bucket of reserves. And I follow that same mentality when purchasing these properties and taking on debt. Like I've, you know, I tweeted the other day, I'm, I've accumulated $6.3 million in, in debt. If I told myself of 10 years ago that I had that much debt, my 10 years ago self would probably faint. Because I, I always had this major aversion to debt. And I think that started out from an early age. My, my dad went bankrupt when I was three years old. He was a commercial real estate developer. I laugh because I now am a commercial real estate owner. But he was he had a very different approach than me. He was looking to get rich quick with the sale, with the development of his first property. Built it in the in the late 80s. Market crashed in Denver where he was at the time, and he was left with debt that he couldn't pay and, and an office space that he couldn't rent out. You know, lost everything, lost his his money, his family, his health. I think from an early age, I've taken that experience to be very financially conservative and, and very risk averse. But I've now realized that it's not just about saving money, it's about putting that money to work for you. And you can safely leverage debt to generate outsized returns without outsized risk. And so I'm when I'm when I'm looking at these deals, I'm making sure that there's the value add plan is pretty shoe in and can be done without question. And then I can get to a point where I'm not in any danger of, of not being able to, to service the debt. Did your dad's experience and, and kind of what you saw with his experience make you hesitate to get into real estate? I know you said, I mean, you said you get into it a little bit later in life. You'd already been in your career for 15 years before you really jumped in. So do you think that's what took you a while to get started? I think it did. I think that that probably had a pretty major imprint in, on my mentality, whether or not I recognized that, that that was the source. And I've always, like I said, I've always lived very well below my means. I never wanted to be in, in danger of, of losing it all. I would say that that's been helpful in that I was able to, to stash a, a lot of cash to be able to go and buy all of these properties. But I think it also hindered me. I should be much further than, than where I am today. For so long, I, I held cash instead of putting in the markets. I mean, I had, I had big windfalls when I was in my, my 20s and, and 30s. I'm now 40. You know, I had six-figure windfalls where that cash ended up just staying as cash because I was so scared of putting it in the market and losing it. You know, I'd seen 2008, 2009 when things crashed, and the worst thing that I could imagine was putting money in into a fund or an ETF and and watching it lose forty percent of its value. And so for years, I just let that money sit in in like high yield savings accounts, earning whatever like three five percent, if that. I finally just realized. I was at a point of desperation trying to figure out what I what I wanted to do next with my career but I realized that I I had this capital that should have been working much harder for me all along and and I could combine that with a bit of business expertise and and hard work to you know get off this this fire train and focus on doing work that I really enjoy while while making good money. I'll talk just a little bit about that. I 
So from an, an early age in my career, I was always focused on fire. I wanted to gain financial independence to retire early. I remember that moment. It was probably in 2000, oh, probably 2007, 2008, which is going to sound like an amazing amount of time ago for many of your younger listeners. But I remember thinking at the time, I had a, a high-yield savings account and it was paying 5% interest. I was in Telluride, Colorado, riding my mountain bike. And I rode the lift up with or the gondola up with a guy that was clearly in his 40s. It was a weekday. He was out riding his mountain bike. And I thought, man, I want that life. I want to be able to just screw off and go ride my mountain bike on a, on a weekday without taking vacation. I built this story in my head that he just, he just didn't work. He wasn't on vacation. He was just riding his mountain bike on a weekday. And I thought, man, if I could just get a million dollars into a savings account at 5% interest, I could make $50,000 a year without any effort. That's enough to live on. I think at the time I was probably making forty thousand a year, and and I thought, man, I just got to get to a million. And I had that mentality. The goalposts kept shifting, and I think eventually, in in like twenty twenty, I thought I just need ten thousand a month. I need one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. I've got a family of four. That should be enough to pay the bills and and live a, a comfortable life. So I thought, okay, using that three percent rule, I've got to get to what is what is the number three percent of. Who knows? You know, it's five, six, six million dollars. Come on, you listen to my first million. You know, we don't do public math. Yeah, we don't do public math. I gotta get my, I gotta get my calculator out. One hundred twenty thousand divided by 003 percent. So that's four million dollars. So I needed to get to four million dollars to be able to safely withdraw one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. And I don't know what this, but I, I realized in in twenty twenty, I still wanted to work. I didn't want to just retire. What am I gonna, what am I gonna do? At the time, I had like a a three-year-old and a, and a, a six-year-old. What am I going to do while my kids are going to school? I got to do something with my time. And so I was lucky that I found this space where I get to work. I'm really enjoying my work. And I'm making far more than the, the $10,000 a month in just two years of, of doing this. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. I can tell you're conservative because even in that calculation, it's known usually as the 4% withdrawal rule and you use 3%. So I can tell you're even, even a, bit, a little bit more conservative than the general rule of thumb there. So I want to go back to your analysis. When you're analyzing a deal, what are your major red flags? Obviously, not meeting your cash on cash returns is a big red flag, but what else in the analysis is a red flag? And then also, what about the properties themselves? Is there anything specific on the properties that are just a no-go for you? It could be location, maybe something to do with the property itself. What, what, is the, what do those red flags look like? I think for the financials, the value-add plan has to be sure. Like it's got to be a no-brainer that I could charge higher rent and achieve those targets. If the property is already at market pricing, chances are there's not going to be a lot of room to, to add value. If I'm just relying on sort of an annual rent increase of 5-10%, which is probably even aggressive now in current times, I'm not going to do that deal. It's got to be a really sure shot that I'm going to those metrics. Other red flags, you've got to be careful about property taxes. So I have to understand what's the impact of a, of a sale on property taxes because you could buy a property where their, their taxes are $10,000 a year today. And when it sells, it'll be reassessed. And if it then reassesses it at the higher value, those property taxes could double, triple, quadruple, depending on, on the area. So I've got to study the, the local approach to appraisals and tax treatment. The other thing is, is looking at occupancy in the area and new supply. So this isn't necessarily part of the, the financial model, but I do have to look at, are there new facilities going up in the area that could dramatically increase supply and, and therefore create an imbalance with demand? Are the other properties full or, or near full? Or are there others that are less full that may be an indication that there's an oversupply in the market? So those are the, the kinds of things that are red flags. In terms of the, the property itself, I like to buy operationally crappy properties that are physically in good shape. I'm not interested in buying something that requires a ton of, of CapEx or you know, investment in, in fixing up the property. In, in most cases, I'm adding a, a fence and gate, an automated gate. I'm adding signs, lights, but not doing a lot of really heavy physical value add. I just recognize that's that's not in my in my skill set. I'm not a, a developer. I'm a I'm an improver. 
And so I'm looking for properties that, that are actually like physically in, in pretty good shape, which in most cases, these are, these are pretty basic metal buildings that have lasted in many, many cases for you know, 30, 40 years. They're usually in, in okay shape. You bought your first property not that long ago. And today you have a portfolio, I think of about seven properties. And you did that in give or take about 20 months or so. And not to do public math, but that's what, three months between deals or so. It's a deal every three months. And I mean, that's pretty quick. That's quick for... I'd say anybody, even an experienced real estate investor, but for somebody who just jumped in, I mean, you just did your first deal not that long ago. So to do seven in 20 months is is a lot. How have you grown so quickly? And what have you experienced as kind of the pros and the cons of growing so fast? I mean, I've grown so quickly because I... I mean, I set, I'm not a huge fan of setting goals, but I did... Actually, Nick Huber set a goal for me. He tweeted at one point before I had the Sultan of Storage profile, but I was just sort of a lurker under my own own profile on Twitter, I saw that he he posted after our conversation and he said, this guy, referring to me, this guy's going to own five self-storage properties in a year. And so that became my goal. And I didn't hit it. I only got to, to four. That was a year from December of 2020. December 2021, I closed on my fourth property, closed on my fifth in, in what was it, March. So it took me a little bit longer to get there. But I kind of had that goal in my mind. But more importantly... I needed to replace my prior W-2 income, or I, I wanted to replace my, my prior W-2 income. And I knew that I had to keep going to hit my, my cash flow targets. So there wasn't really the option to stop. And even today, like I've, you know, financially, it's good. I don't need to continue to add more, but I'm really enjoying what I'm, I'm doing. I would continue to do this for the foreseeable future, even if it wasn't... Well, I don't know if I can say even if it wasn't creating financial returns. like I, That's part of what I really enjoy of it. But I guess what I'm saying is that I'm already at a number that I'm comfortable with, but I'm going to keep going because I'm, I'm having fun. Things that I, I've learned along the way, honestly, so it's 7 today, it should be 11. And there was at least 4 properties that I wish that I would have, have purchased. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the, the past, but I passed up on some deals that I now realize I should have done. And the, the reason for that was lack of confidence and distraction. The lack of confidence was that I was still early. I wasn't sure that I could execute on this playbook that the internet had given me. And so I, I just didn't do deals because I, I just... I remember thinking, man, maybe you should, throw, you should slow down. Like you've, you haven't even closed your first deal and now you're under contract on your second deal. Like what if you close on your first and you realize that this is a business that you don't want to be in and you've gone so far down this that, that you can't get out of it? So with the benefit of hindsight, I wish I would have been more aggressive early on and, and gone after a few more that crossed my plate. So that's a, a bit of a, a learning. And then I think the other thing too is just being aware that you you always have to keep building your pipeline. I'm at a point right now I don't want to be in in that I have it's the first time in 2 years that I don't have a property under contract. And I think I have I've taken my foot off the gas a little bit. There's a little bit less urgency I think in in what I'm doing because I've I've sort of achieved some of my early targets and I'll I'll admit that I have not prospected as aggressively as I I should have for the last six months or so. I'll give myself a little bit of an excuse in that, you know, buying seven properties in that shorter period of time, there's there's a lot of heavy lifting to do operationally and fixing them up. So I I had some distractions there. But I also, the the other distraction I reference is I got and quit 
two fintech jobs in the last two years. I was lured back to W-2 roles twice. In both cases, realized I, I was happier convincing mom and top, pop storage owners to, to sell their businesses to me and, and left those roles. But man, that a cushy W-2 deposit every two weeks is it's a hard drug to, to wean yourself off of. Why not do both? You could. I question that. I mean, I experienced it. I recognized that I was leaving a lot of opportunity on the table by staying in the W-2. I was taking that instant gratification of, of the, the W-2 income, but it was coming at the expense of much greater value that I could have been building in, in storage. I mean, quite frankly, I, I can make more money buying storage than I could as a, as a W-2. And I have, I have more control over the, the value of the business. Whereas with stock options, I'm, I'm subject to the performance of that business that I have a small role in. So all of this has been done with your own capital, right? How do you think about potentially bringing in investors? And I'm curious because it's kind of like having a W-2 job. And people always ask me, whether I guest on other podcasts or even guests that come on here, they ask me, like, what is your plan with your future real estate? And I'm like, you know, I could scale much larger if I brought in outside money. But to me, then you have now you have a boss again, right? You have your investors are essentially now your boss and you're reporting to those investors. And I'm like, to me, Personally, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I kind of feel like I'd rather own 50, 100 units by myself, scale slowly, just own it entirely by myself, no no investors, no boss, versus owning 1,000, 2,000 units with, with outside investors. I'm curious how you think about that. I often deliberate on this. The question is, do I w- want to own a little of a lot or a lot of a little? And the conclusion I've come to today is that I want to own a lot of a little. And that's relatively little. I don't want a job. I don't want to have to report to anybody. Today, I, I report to the bank who's loaned me a boatload of money. And, and that reporting consists of like twice a year sending them profit and loss statements that I pull from QuickBooks in a matter of, of seconds. If I stop paying my bills, they become a really nasty boss. But in reality, I don't have anybody that I report to. And I, I love that freedom. I love the fact that you know, I've ridden my mountain bike more in the last six months than I, you know, than I than I had you know, decades before that. I I went to I took a trip to the French Alps, like last minute ten day trip to the French Alps to watch the mountain bike world champions championships and and mountain bike with with some mates over there. I couldn't do that if I if I had a, a W two. I couldn't. I don't know if I could do that if I was running a you know what is a a, a small private equity equity business. My conclusion is today that unless I run out of capital and I have more opportunities than I have personal capital, I'm going to keep playing with with house money. I think that if I come across a big deal that I can't take down on my own, and I'm sure that there's a lot of value to be added, and I'm the guy to add that value, and I just need some I need some additional capital, I'm, then I think I'm I'm forced to make the decision whether or not to to take outside investment. But for today, I'm. I'm really happy just in investing my own money and, and taking the control that, that comes with it. That piece you said about, I don't think I could do that if I had outside investors. That's ex- I don't think you could. I mean, I mean, it depends how you design the business, how big you get. But I think that's the exact point is that if you have investors like that, you can't do stuff like that. And maybe, maybe you make a little bit more money if you, you have a fund, you do a little bit of small private equity stuff. But I don't know. To me, it's just, that's not the route I don't think I want to go. And it sounds like you're, you're in the same boat there. I'm sure I could make more money as a GP raising outside capital. That's not the most important thing to me. 
you know, money was like number one for most of my career. Now it's, it's not number one to me is freedom. You know, I referenced the France trip in August. My family and I are planning a, to spend six weeks of, of our spring and summer next year in, in Europe somewhere. Like we're trying to figure out where, where that's going to be. I couldn't do that if I, if I had investors to report to. Although, I mean, maybe I could, but I would be less comfortable with that. Again, I'm, as I'm building this, what is a business with a real estate component, my focus is building it to, to work without me. You know, that's with my, my team. Like I've built a, it's a very lean team of three people that manage the properties plus, you know, call it seven local contractors. You know, I would have to, if I wanted to build this thing out and scale it using investor money, that operational team grows too. And I'm, I'm not just reporting to investors. I'm also leading a team. As we wrap up the show, what is the biggest takeaway you want our listeners to walk away with from this episode? And where can people go to connect with you? What's your Twitter? Do you have a website, any other social media, email, anything that you want to you wanna have people connect with you with? The only place that you can find me today is on Twitter, at Sultan of Storage. I debated whether or not I'd, I'd reveal my real name on this podcast. But for now, I'm going to stay anonymous because it, it allows me to, to be more transparent with my numbers. If you go, you go to my, my Twitter profile and search terms like cheddar or bags of cash, and you'll see all the, the threads that I've put together on how did I stash away you know, $1.5 million to, to put in of my own funds into, into storage? How did I finance these, these properties? I go in pretty deep detail there. So go to, to at Sultan of Storage on Twitter, where I am anonymous today, but someday I'll, I'll tell you all my real name. But it's, I assure you, it's not as, as interesting as Sultan of Storage. And then advice for anyone out there, you know, I'm 40 years old. I felt like if you would have told me when I was 25 that it took me until 40 to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life, I guess I figured it out when I was 38. I would have thought, man, that's a long time, but I'm glad he finally figured it out. So my point to, I think you, your, your listeners are, are probably a, a variety of, of ages, probably leaning more towards the younger age. My advice is don't wait. There is a big difference between saving and investing. And I think when you're young, you can take bigger risks with investing, but you should take calculated risks. So I'm not saying like go buy cryptocurrency risks, but more of when you're young, focus on buying cash flowing assets. Like, you know, go buy. I think real estate is one of the best ways to to grow wealth. And I would encourage your listeners to go look for real estate that you can add value to. And I think that's that's what I love about self storage is it's a combination of a business and a real estate asset where you can really add value through enhancing the business while getting the tax treatment and lending availability of of a real, real estate asset. And I think the other point of guidance is just to like I think you should keep your antennas up looking for those opportunities that are are interesting to you and learn about them but at some point you have to take action. And I see so many people on Twitter in my in my DMs asking questions that they should not be asking unless they have a, a deal in their pocket that they're ready to move on. Don't overthink it. Don't overcomplicate it. Just take action. And like I'm a good example of that. If I would have sat and, and thought more about it, I wouldn't have typed up those 50 letters and, and sent them. I would have talked myself out of it, or I would have figured out a better way to do it, and I probably never would have done it. So really in the end, just take action. Well, Sultan of Storage, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do so. I really I learned a lot, enjoyed the conversation. 
I had a ton more questions written down that I would love to ask and talk about. So Patrick or myself will have to invite you back here on the show soon to finish the conversation. I really appreciate you joining me. Sounds good. Thanks, Robert. I've really enjoyed it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.